When it comes to drinks, food, and morning showers, they need to be either cold or hot, but never lukewarm. Jesus taught us this same principle when it comes to churches. They need to either be hot or cold, but not lukewarm. What did Jesus mean when he told the Laodicean church that their spiritual condition made him sick to his stomach? Hi, I'm Mary Wurtson, and this is Truth Encounter, a program committed to introducing you to the biblical Jesus. My husband Dave invites us today to open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 and following, where we are introduced to a church that caused Jesus to make his strongest rebuke against a congregation. Now, if you think that Jesus was some soft-spoken, gentle teacher who never said anything with a bite, you need to join us today as Dave teaches us on the Church of Laodicea. One of the things in moving to Texas is that you need to learn that there's such a thing called iced tea. In fact, I'll never forget going years ago to New York City, taking a Texan back up there. David and Audrey Ferris went up to this prophetic congress, and we sat down at a New York City restaurant, and David and Audrey asked for tea. They brought out a great big pot of hot tea. Because if you're a Yankee, when you mention tea, you mean like the British thing of a big pot of really hot water. They bring you the Lipton tea bag and you have hot tea. And I remember Dr. Ferris sitting there and very patiently explaining to this New York waiter that he did not want hot tea. He wanted iced tea. And eventually he just said, listen, we're going to make this really simple. Bring the pot of hot water, bring the Lipton tea bags, and then bring us a great big container of ice cubes. And we ended up all week long in this restaurant making our own iced tea at a New York restaurant. Because when it comes to tea, nobody wants lukewarm tea. I've gone all over the world. I've never had someone said, please bring me some really warm, gushy tea. It's got to be iced tea or it has to be hot tea, not in between. My dad would not like hot coffee. He didn't drink hot coffee. What he wanted was iced coffee. And I remember going through the same thing because whether in the north or the south, when you ask for a coffee, you want hot coffee. In fact, I did the funeral for Willie, who owned DTs, and I want to tell you that I use as the standard for what it means to keep coffee efficiently hot, I use DTs Cafe to measure that standard. Because at DTs, you drink three swallows of coffee, and the waitress is there pouring hot coffee into your coffee. Because it's got to be hot. When it comes to drinks, it's got to be hot, or it's got to be cold. Showers. When it comes to showers, like I remember going to Poland, I can eat anything, monkeys, lizards, snakes. I really don't care that much what I eat. I really don't care, you know, what the climate's like. It can be rainy and cold and stuff like that. If I can only get in to a hot shower, I don't want it to be lukewarm. One of the most irritating things in the world is to turn on the shower and realize that there's no heater in the thing. That they just let the tap water. Now, here in Texas in August, you can get a hot shower without any, any help from gas or electricity or anything else. But I'll never forget being in Portugal. It was freezing cold. I could handle that. 
Man, you could get about 30 blankets. I got logged and built a big fire. I'd work really hard to get the fire cranked up. You get in the morning and you had lukewarm showers. I mean, they were in cold, like when you're really hot after an athletic contest, a lot of you guys and girls will get into a cold shower because you want to be refreshed and get rid of all the heat in your body. So we do talk about having cold showers. And we like hot showers. One of the, one of the real points of communication in our marriage is that I sit in the shower. You've all heard me testify to that. One of my big luxuries, and Joshua had followed with the words and genes. You get up in the morning, you get into the shower, it steams the whole house up, and you just sit there for 20 minutes. Well, Mary was raised by Art Van Campen, and he had six kids, and they used to have to turn the water on, soap down, then turn it off, and then you could turn it on again. i never forget the first time I went out there. They just about threw me out of the family before I was even in. <laughs> I told Mary very soon in our marriage, I said, listen, I'll work hard. I'll even work overtime. Don't worry about the hot water that I use in the shower. I will pay for it. Because showers are supposed to be hot and cold. You go to Ruth Chris Steakhouse. They bring out not a lukewarm steak. How many of you have ever had a lukewarm steak? What do you do with it? You throw it back to the kitchen. You go to a big restaurant like Ruth Chris, and man, the, the plate itself will give you mortal burns. I mean, you'll be in the Baylor burn unit for touching the plate. And you want a steak to be sizzling. If I go to a Jewish restaurant and I'm going to have cold cuts, who wants to have warm, kosher food? You don't want warm food. It's got to be cold cuts or hot sizzling sticks. So when it comes to drinks, when it comes to showers and baths, when it comes to food, you got to have the thing either hot or cold. And I want to share something with you. When it comes to churches, Jesus tells you the same thing. And so Jesus sits down by you today, and he sits down with me today, and he says, David, in this last letter, this seventh letter that I'm giving you this first century church, he says, I want to talk to you, and I want to talk to you about temperature. I want to talk to you about spiritual temperature. And Jesus says, I want you either to be hot, or I want you to be cold. And that really is a really difficult issue. What does it mean? Why would you just ever want somebody to be cold spiritually? We're going to talk about that. He says, I want you to be fervently hot spiritually. I want you to be cold spiritually. What does he mean by that? We'll find out when we look at the church of Laodicea. But the thing I don't want is for you to be sickly warm. And for some of you that are nice to really nice language, you think the church is a place where you shouldn't talk about things like sex and you shouldn't talk about things that aren't nice, especially by getting sick to your stomach. I got news for you. Jesus would come here today. And he would look at a lukewarm congregation. He would say, you all make me feel like throwing up. That's what he says in this text. Because the real Jesus is not into nice, warm, gooey religion. He's into reality. He gave his life for us. He rose again from the dead. And he says, man, I want to talk to you. This thing needs to be real. I want you to picture a church that has a beautiful church building. I mean, it has beautiful columns in the front. It just stretches out by the miles. It has an auditorium that seats thousands. It has a monthly budget of several hundred thousand dollars. There are millions of dollars coming in. It has a pastoral staff of about 30 specialized pastors that cover every area. And as American believers, we look at this gigantic complex, the mega church. We say, man, that's, a, that's it. Man, that's what we want to be. 
And Jesus walked into this congregation to speak on a Sunday morning. And Jesus comes out with this stuff. You know what? You think you're rich. But I want you to know that you're dirt poor. He looks at all the beautiful clothes. He looks at all the immaculate, incredible wonders that American clothing industry can put on people's backs. He said, you know, you think you're clothed beautifully. But Jesus said, I want you to know that you're naked and bare and embarrassed. And finally, he says, you know, you think you've got this whole thing together. You think that you can see spiritually. You're so proud. When you open up the word of God, you're, you're just thrilled with the wonders that you see there. And intellectually, you have all kinds of doctrine, all kinds of insight into this biblical message. You think you can really see things spiritually. And Jesus says to this incredibly wealthy congregation, I don't want you to know that you're blind probably more than any other church that we've talked about, the Laodicean church is the church that is like the church that we minister to in America. And I travel around the world, I'm with churches like that in Latin America that have no buildings. They're so poor that their pastors all work multiple jobs. The way that they pay their pastor is with, with their leftover food. They have just no money at all. They have no facilities, no buildings, no Sunday school materials, just hardly anything. They're just, just, just in poverty. And yet sometimes Jesus will walk into that kind of a church and say, you know what? Like they said to the church at Smyrna, you think you're poor. You don't think you have anything. But I want you to know, from my standpoint, you are eternally rich. So as we open up to Revelation chapter 3 today, we're down to the seventh church. It's the church of Laodicea. And the Lord Jesus begins to talk things over with his church. And this is the church that was sick to Christ because they were just complacent. They were arrogant. They thought that they owned everything. They thought that they were rich. And the thing that scares me about this, when I sit down and read this letter, one of the terrors of my life, one of the, one of the fears of my life, is that one day Jesus will, will put his arm around me and say, David, you know what? You thought that you were rich towards me, but you weren't. You thought you were powerful for me, but you weren't. You thought that you were walking intimately with me, but you weren't. That's a scary thing to me. Because you see, I think you can get all wrapped up. You can be doing the Jesus thing, but you're really not listening to Jesus. You can be doing the church thing, but you're really not connecting with the biblical Jesus. You see, you can become like the Laodicean church, and one of, the, one of the most horrible things is to think that you're really doing this thing, but you're not. In other words, you become insensitive. You become self-sufficient. You become complacent. That's what the church of Laodicea, that's a terrible plague that had come upon them. In the seventh letter, it says in verse 14, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, to the angel, to the messenger, to the one that's bringing John the Apostle's letter to the Laodicean church. They've now made their entire circuit. They've now come the 40 miles southwest from the city of Philadelphia. And now we have the final messenger delivering the parchment scroll to the church of Laodicea. And they begin to read to this church. Now this church was in a city that was one of the most wealthy churches of the first century Roman Empire. It had been founded about 165 years before Christ. It was founded in a, in a strategic place where a north-south road met and an east-west road met. The road from Ephesus went right through Laodicea. Because of this strategic place, it was in a beautiful valley. There were 8,000-foot mountains to the back, and so it was a beautiful climactic place. Because of this juncture of, of the roads, it was a place where commerce rose up. It was in the ancient world. Agriculture was very strong, and they had incredible, marvelous black goats. 
and sheep that would produce this very fine, beautiful, beautiful wool. And they would weave this together in, in, these, in the, almost a silken, marvelous woolen black garment. And all over the Roman Greek world, they would sell Laodicean black wool. And this developed a very powerful industry that agriculture generated banking. In fact, the Roman leader, since Cicero, talks about going to Laodicea to cash in his bonds. There were gigantic banks. When you moved about 10 miles away from the city, there was an ancient temple there that was dedicated to a god of healing called Menchu. Almost like a Chinese name, but it was a Greek name. And this, this temple complex developed one of the most elite medical schools. They had developed about 200 years before Christ. A man that taught in that school came up with the idea that disease was from multiple causes. So in order to get a cure, you needed to have multiple cures. And so he would mix various uh, plants and different chemicals together in the ancient world way of viewing things. And one of the things they did is they mixed together this, this particular vegetation with some oil. And they, they mixed it with dough, kind of a bread dough. And they would put it on eyes and it had tremendous healing effects for some of the first century eye diseases and people came from all over the world to have this especially Laodicean eye salve put on their eyes. So here we have a city where it has a gigantic upper middle class. In 60 AD the city was leveled by an earthquake the same thing happened to Philadelphia and the Hierapolis, which were cities that were up the way from them. And those cities needed to have Roman help from the emperor to be able to rebuild their city. Laodicea turned down the Roman grant and their business people rebuilt their city so that by the time John wrote this letter to them in the 90s, the city was completely immaculate again. This is a self-sufficient Texas bunch. This is a group that has the money. This is the group that can make things happen. You got the picture? You've got a strong church that has strong banking. It has strong textile industry. It has a strong medical community. This church is really strong from a human standpoint. That's the church of Laodicea. It was probably founded by Epaphras, the Colossian, who just came a little bit farther down into the valley to a bigger city than Colossae and probably founded the church in Laodicea. Remember when we studied the book of Colossians, Paul also wrote for them to take the letter that was written to Colossae and also take it on to Laodicea and let them read the letter as well. The letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians was probably a circular letter that also came to this first century city. So it's a church that's on the elite list. This is the powerful list. As I travel around, I've spoken in some of these churches on a Sunday morning. And, and man alive, the Rolls Royces roll in and the, you know, the Mercedes rolls in. And I've sat down with some of their boards. And I'm, I'm sitting there going, man, you know, this could be a, a really nice gig for Christ. This would really do it. That's the Laodicean church. Look what Jesus says to them. He says, I write to you Laodiceans. Like, who's going to talk to them? She says, these are the words of the amen. Now, a lot of you are used to clothing your prayers with amen. What in the world does amen mean? Amen means you can count on it. In fact, in Isaiah 65, verse 7, the Isaiah the prophet says, Elohim, amen. I want you to trust in Elohim, the great creator God, who is the amen. In Hebrew, amen was not just like the end of a prayer. In Hebrew, when they heard those words, they'd instantly think of, you can depend upon that. It's a word that meant you can build on that. It's a word that meant you can rely upon that. 
So Jesus is saying as he talks to us, I am the one you can rely upon. So when you close your prayer, you say, in Jesus' name, we can rely upon this. We are expressing our trust. Amen means you can count on it. I want you to learn to trust in the amen. Jesus is the one who is the amen. He's the one you can count upon. We can count upon him because he's two other things. It says here that he is faithful and that he is true. Look at what else it says about him. He says, I am the faithful and true witness. I'm thankful for that. All your life, you're going to have to make judgments on who can you trust. You've all heard a presidential leader that says, I promise you, I didn't do this. Can you trust that witness? Is that a faithful, true witness? I wonder, but I guarantee you that one thing we've learned over the last few years is, man, you can't trust the witness of political leaders. But I want you to know from the depths of my heart, there is one precious, great world leader who's the ultimate world leader who all my life has been talking to me. And he's been trying to reach me and trying to spend time with me. And every single time that I look back over my life, Jesus is faithful I can always depend upon him, and he's true. What Jesus tells me is the truth. Amen? I want to ask you, is that the bottom line commitment of your heart? Do you believe that when all is said and done, Jesus' words will be proved to be reliable? It'll prove that you could build on that. Amen? It's something you could count on. All the young people are going to have to decide, who am I going to believe is telling me the truth? Who am I going to believe is giving me real insight into life? And Jesus says, I'm the true one. I'm the one that talks to you about reality. Jesus comes to us today and he says, I'm the one that you can always rely upon. I'm always true. And as John said those words, you can almost hear John saying, he bore a faithful witness before Pilate. When Pilate asked him, who are you? Are you the king of Israel? Jesus says, I am. When Caiaphas asked him, are you the Messiah? He said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming with the angels of heaven. And one day you will be forced to bow down before me. And Jesus was crucified because of that truth. Because he told the truth. I want you to know that the bottom line needs to be that we believe that Yeshua, Jesus, is the one that can be relied upon. He is the Amen who can be counted upon. He is the one that teaches us reality. When all is said and done, your whole existence will depend upon that. In a moment of time when you go into eternity, you're going to either grab a hold of Jesus because you've been holding on to him and he's been holding on to you all of your life and he's been the truthful witness to you. Or are you going to find out that it was all just not true at all? Or are you going to find out that you live for something else? And if you live for something else, you're going to find out that Jesus really was the true one. Jesus comes and says, man, this thing about being a born-again believer is about me. It's about receiving my witness. And then he begins to give an exposure of what's going on in the church. Look what he says to this church. He says, I am the ruler, the firstborn of creation. He's not only the faithful one, the true one, but I am the ruler of creation. That's a great thing to be reminded of. It uses the word there is, I am the originator of creation. Just like Colossians says that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. The same exact word is used here by John that was used in our study of Colossians. So we have that same high view of Christ. Now what does this sovereign, the ruler of God's creation say? He says, I know your deeds. We've heard that before, haven't we? Jesus knows what's going on in every one of our lives. He knows our actions. I love that he says that. He loves everything that we're doing. He says, I know that you are neither cold nor hot. He says, I wish that you were one or the other. 
So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I love the way the NIV, isn't that a marvelous way to talk about throwing up? Because that's really what the text says there. I love, you know, but when you're in a nice NIV committee, like we used to sit with Dr. Walk and he'd read the text. We'd look at all the different, different textual problems and he said, now how would you guys translate that? And then you had to think about the different churches' audiences and stuff. There were so many times that you had to come up with, now how could we say vomit that would really work on a Sunday morning? <laughs> and spit you out of my mouth comes pretty good. Isn't that good? Now let's think of it. Why in the world would Jesus talk about, I don't want you to be lukewarm, but I'd rather have you cold or hot. Well, we could interpret that to mean that Jesus would rather have you really hot for him. And a lot of you have heard messages saying, man, you need to be enthusiastic and fervent. Be zealous for the Lord. And so you had everybody that was drinking tons and tons of coffee. They never slept. Man, they're going, 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 going. Man, we're fervent for God. Man, I would get tired just listening to them. If you were kind of a melancholy personality, a little bit more poetical and literary, you'd be watching a guy, just watching him speak. You'd go, Man, you'd be tired. I, I just hear a guy speak and I'd be tired. And then I'd feel guilty. Because somehow I just couldn't quite crank up quite that, that high energy level. So a lot of you, how many of you have heard messages? Man, what the Lord wants you to be is burn out for Jesus, right? You've got to burn out for Jesus, you know. Be fervent for him. That's why it's so important to think about the original context. Up the road from Laodicea was Hierapolis. And Hierapolis had hot springs, like Hot Springs, Arkansas, or Hot Springs, Budapest. It's amazing. Wherever I go in the world, whenever there's hot springs, in the dead of winter, people will go, and they'll have youth meetings where they go swimming by these hot springs. When it's 40 below zero, you get in the hot springs. Why? Why do you go to hot springs? At the Hierapolis, people would come by the thousands to sit in the mineral waters of the hot springs. And they would sit in the ancient world. You didn't have gas heaters and electric heaters. So, man, when you had hot springs in your city and it had minerals in it that were healing, you would have... And in Europe, it's really a big thing, even today. You see, hot springs are healing to your body. How many of you have taken some saunas? You've gotten in hot baths. Why do you do that? Because there's healing properties. It soothes your muscles. It heals your body. But this water would leave Hierapolis. It would come 10 miles across the plains of the Lycus Valley. It would come over alkaline soil. And by the time it went over this great big mile-wide cliff, it would be lukewarm. It would stink to high heaven. And right by Laodicea, this marvelous healing hot spring had become a lukewarm tepid. If you drank it, you'd spit it out. It was no longer healing. It was no longer good for anything except to dump into the river and dump out to the sea. You know what Jesus is saying? I want a church family to be healing. I want it to be like the hot springs of Hierapolis. I want when people to come to your midst, when they gather in your homes, when they come to meet you, I want them to have healing hot waters that can minister to them, that can comfort them, that can come alongside them. Jesus is saying, I want the church to be a hot place that brings healing warmth in that, in that regard. That's what he's saying in the context. That's what Laodiceans would think about. You say, Dave, what about the cold thing? Jesus said, I'd rather have you be hot or cold. Well, the Colossae, there were not hot springs, but there were cold springs. When you've been on a long hike and you've been hiking up in the mountains or, or out in East Texas through the woods and you come to a water fountain, how many of you love lukewarm water fountains? Aren't they great? 
state parks have a gigantic inn with lukewarm water fountains. Or how many of you have ever been working out in the yard and you get a drink out of your hose in the middle of the summer? Isn't that lukewarm water just great? And some of you have your wife come out and, man, she's got a great big glass and it's filled with ice cubes and that cold water. Colossi had water that came out of the ground like that. You see, cold water, when you're really hot, is refreshing. You gather together with other believers. You should be like you're drinking living water. It should be like you're receiving refreshment, cold, ice-cold water that comes into the, to the barrenness of your soul and the thirst of your soul. As we gather together on Sunday morning, the Lord wants us to thirst after the living water. Did you come today saying, I, I'm thirsty to hear Jesus talk to me? I want to have him refresh me. I get up in the morning, and to be honest with you, most of the time, you know, as I'm beginning to come out of a contest, I say, oh, no, another day. Anybody like that? Sure, some of you are like that. Now, some of you are morning people. You get up, oh, man, it's a great day. Look at that sunrise. I don't really. My dad woke up like that. My dad blew his nose, and the whole house would wake up. And then he'd be singing. I'm so happy in Jesus. And my dad lived, and he was singing happy in Jesus. I don't sing happy in Jesus till about 6 o'clock at night. Man, I get up in the morning, like, I had to speak at 8 o'clock way up in Denton this past week. And, man, I'm, I'm driving up through the traffic of Fort Worth. I think, Lord, i got to speak at 8. And, man, I'm saying, Lord, I need some refreshing living water. I feel lousy, feel tired. I feel like I need about six cups of coffee to get kind of rolling. It's a neat thing to be able to say, Jesus, you know, I'm not going to be able to handle this on my own today. I'm, I'm going to take time out. And i got to speak to about 25 pastors from all over the country. And what can you say to pastors that they haven't heard anyway? So, Lord, just give me a drink this morning and help me to be able to give them a good drink. Isn't that an incredible thing to be able to do? And Jesus says, I want you to be either be able to be the healing hot spring or I want you to be a cold, refreshing drink. Those are the two metaphors he uses that the latest scenes would understand so well. But what I don't want to happen, I don't want people to come and meet the latest scene believers. And have you be some yucky in between. Jesus isn't contrasting a fervent, you know, enthusiastic relationship with... He is saying you need to have that. But that's not really what is at stake here. It doesn't help us understand the cold. But what he's saying is that I want you to be like the healing springs of Hierapolis. And I want you to be like the cold, refreshing springs of Colossae. And not like that, that ugly river that spills over that cliff that's just lukewarm, just up the road from your city. Then he exposes what was causing them to be lukewarm and what was making Christ sick to his stomach about this church. He says, I wish that you were hot or you were cold. So because you are lukewarm, I'm going to throw you up out of your mouth. Why? Because you say that I'm rich. That's one of the great problems for us as American believers. We think that because we have money that we have the reality of God. And that's not going to work. Now, I want to just praise the Lord. We have a great blessing. There's nothing wrong with money. And some of you have been blessed with money, and I want to share with you that that's a good gift from the Lord. But I also want to share with you about a great danger for you as an individual, for us as a church. You see, money gives you a false belief that you can make things happen. When I was over many years ago in, in Cairo, Egypt, we had several powerful businessmen. They were all presidents of their company. They were really blowing and going. They were really excited about their companies. And I've shared with you in the past how we got hung up in Egypt for two days. And those men literally went out of their minds trying to make things happen. 
They tried calling. They tried getting on airplanes. They were hung up, and they were messing up their schedule for two days. And I'll never forget, some of those men literally were shaking at night because their money couldn't make it happen. And they were not in control anymore, and and they, they couldn't even reach the United States with their companies and find out what was going on. And boy, it hit me in the face as the anger welled up and as the sense of control was lost. It called my attention to how much our money makes us think that we're in control. And that's what the Laodicean church believed. They believed that they had money. And because they had money, they could make things happen. Jesus is saying, in reality, you're poor. You know, as believers, every one of us need to reverse this American idea. There's nothing wrong with making money, nothing wrong with wealth. It's a good gift from the Lord. But if you're ever going to get from A to Z in your spiritual life, you need to understand that when we stand before Jesus, money means nothing. Your money can't make it happen for you. Jesus paves the streets of heaven with gold. He uses it for gravel. He uses it for blacktop. Do you understand that? Now, when one of the things we need to be really careful at, brothers and sisters, if someone poor comes into our congregation or somebody rich comes into our congregation, is there a difference between the way that we relate to them? Because I've got news for you. From God's perspective, God is saying that many times those who are daily depending upon him just they get food into their mouth. Those are the ones that are living close to God. And I'm convicted about that as we grow and as we mature. It's always so easy to think that we're rich when the only way that we can be rich is to admit our poverty before Jesus. That's what he's saying. He says, oh, I wish you'd realize that you would understand that spiritually you have nothing without me. You see, as I was driving to, to Denton to speak, if I'm saying, man, I've done this over and over again to apply it in a spiritual way, if I say, I am rich, I am rich in messages, I've done this over and over again, and I have the right illustration that I can make it happen for the people of God, and I can wow these pastors, then I'm filled with pride and self-sufficiency, and I'm complacent, and nothing will happen for the glory of the kingdom as far as my own gift. God might choose to work sovereignly, but I'm out of the flow of what God wants to do. Instead, Paul says, when I'm weak, when I'm poor, one of the hardest things to get across to Americans, some of you are saying, man, I can't serve the Lord because I feel so weak. Man, that's right when you can serve him. When you don't think you can do it, when you don't have the resources to do it, when you don't believe you got enough money to do it, that's when you can do it because you get down on your knees and pray. You need to be getting ready all week long saying, Lord, we need riches from you. We need treasures from you. We need you to come and meet our needs and fill us with gold. Refine in the fire, Jesus says to them. Well, I want you to pray for that. He says, oh, I wish you'd admit that you are poor. He said, you say you're rich and have wealth, and you don't have need of anything. But you not realize that you are wretched and pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Does I counsel for you to buy from me gold refined in the fire? First Peter talked about that as true faith. Faith that's been tested by trials. So that you can become rich. I want you to buy white clothes. They wore these beautiful black goatskin clothes. And Jesus says, you're not going to be able to get linen in Laodicea. You've got to get that from Egypt. But Jesus is saying, I want to give you the white robes of my righteousness. In the book of Revelation, over and over again, the white robe, the beautiful white linen robe, stood for the righteousness of the saints. And what Jesus is saying is, you think you can stand in your self-righteousness, but you can't, that you need to receive what I can give you. You need to let me clothe you in the beautiful white robe of heaven. What Jesus is ultimately saying. 
You say that you need to buy from me a clothes that will cover your shameful nakedness. And you need to get salve that will put on your eyes so that you can see. What a thing to say to the Laodiceans. They were the people that had the ointment that you put on their eyes. Jesus is saying that when you're broken, some of you, as the Lord's work in your life, you're you're, you're saying, I'm losing my self-confidence. I'm losing my confidence that I can do things. That's not a bad thing. It's a horrible thing to tell Americans because you're constantly going to seminars saying, man, you can do it. You're really good. And I'm not telling you're not worth anything. You are worth so much. Jesus gave his life for you. But you're not worth something because you perform and because you act. You're worth something because you've been given the gift of grace and forgiveness and new life in Christ. And you're always humble before it. The more you grow in the Lord, the more you revel in his amazing gift. You understand that? What the church of Laodicea had forgotten, they were strutting around with their thumbs between their lapels, thinking what a good boy they were and what a good girl they were, and therefore they were poor, spiritually. They weren't broken anymore. They weren't down on their knees anymore. They weren't asking for God. They were just debating about the church thing anymore. Some of you are at a place in your Christian life where you can feel Jesus trying to help you to grow further. Trying to help you to get closer to him. And you, he's putting his finger on something. You're saying, man, I just can't do this in my own strength. That's good. It'll humble you. It'll humble you. It'll break you. When was the last time you just broke down and cried before Jesus? Because you've just felt so weak and helpless. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's hard for rich people to get down their knees and just cry. But that's when Jesus' love can flow. That's when the Holy Spirit really is able to change us and transform us. The church of Laodicea didn't feel they needed to get down their knees. They had all the money. They could make the programs happen. They had all the, the medicine they needed. They could heal all the diseases. They could handle everything. And Jesus, the real Jesus comes into them and says, you guys don't realize you are naked before God. You are sick in your own strength before God. You don't have money that means a blessed thing. You need to just realize, like the church of Smyrna, that you are just a poor, miserable lot. And yet, because of the gift of grace, you become clothed in heavenly garments. Do you understand that difference? I'm not saying that we say we're just worms and we don't have any identity. That's not what I'm saying. But we need to find our identity in Jesus. And Jesus says this, I discipline those that I love. And then we have those most famous words, and that's the invitation today. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and will open the door, I will come into him and I'll have fellowship with him. There's been all kind of debate through the church. You know, should we use that for evangelism? Well, and, and then there's also the idea that this idea is like Jesus is standing. He's getting ready to come into the world. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is going to be standing and knocking at the door of history. That's all true. But I want you to think really carefully about the the message to the church of Laodicea. It says here to the church of Laodicea, Behold, I'm standing at your door and knock. And I want you to see, he doesn't say I'm knocking at the church's door. Because it says if anyone, it uses the Greek word, any individual. You see, the church always boils down to us together, but us individually working together. So I think that what Jesus is saying in this passage, as we finish these seven churches... We've spoken about churches that lost their first love. 
We've spoken about churches that, that had let immorality into their life, had let idolatry into their life. They're beginning to allow sexual sin to permeate their lives. We've talked about churches that were living for materialism, just living for things. We've gone through all kinds of things that Jesus has put his finger on. As he closes these letters, he says, I want to talk to you as an individual. The neat thing about Jesus is saying, I'm still knocking at your heart's door. Some of you have had preachers that gave up on you. Some of you have had churches that gave up on you. Some of you have said, man, because of the thing that I've gotten involved in, I don't feel Jesus wants everything to do with me. That's not true. Jesus is knocking at your heart's door. One of the hardest people for me to relate to is an arrogant, self-righteous, rich believer. Man, I get really uptight about that, and I can feel like I just want to get away from them. But what Jesus says, I'm knocking on your heart's door, they make me sick. But I love Jesus. He overcomes his stomach difficulties with me and with you. He keeps knocking on our heart's door. He says, behold, I see in it the heart's door and knock. He said, if anyone, if you will hear my voice and open the door, you know what Jesus says, I'll come in. I'm going to renew that intimacy with you again. We're going to have meals together again. We're going to have table fellowship together again. I will come into him and we'll together eat together. And then he says, let him who has ears to hear, he says, I'm going to clothe you in beautiful garments. Ultimately, I'm going to give you this beautiful heavenly garment. But right now, in the flow of the seven churches of the book of Revelation, in the flow of the church age today, Jesus says, I'm knocking at your heart's door. He says, I want you to come to the place of brokenness where you say that I'm not self-sufficient. And I don't think I can make it happen in my own strength. I want you to give me the clothes of righteousness which only Jesus can give you. I want my life to become a hot medical spring that is able to bring healing to other people. Is that the way your life is permeating people during the week? All over this area, are we going out like the beautiful medicinal springs of Hierapolis and we bring hot spiritual healing to people that we come in contact with? Are we like a refreshing drink when we're with people? Or have we become just tepidly warm, just lukewarm? And Jesus knocked at her heart door and says, man, if you're just lukewarm, if my relationship with you has gone on the back burner, Jesus says, I'm, I want you to know that I'm out here. I'm knocking. He's in your life as a believer, but he says, I want to have intimate fellowship with you. I want us to eat together again. When you get really uptight with somebody, when you get angry with somebody, you no longer want to eat with them. You ever notice that? Some of you that have had good friends in the past, when you lose that intimacy, you lose the heartbeat of that relationship, instantaneously you stop eating together. The same thing's true in your relationship with Jesus. You stop living with him every day. As we close these letters to the seven churches, I want you to realize that Jesus is knocking on your hearts or individual. As American believers, we're so afraid, it's so afraid of coming apart. We're so afraid of coming to those moments in our life where we just feel totally helpless, totally weak. And Jesus is saying that if you want to really get close to me, that's what you need to do. You need to, you need to have time where you're just broken before me. And you feel like you're going to cease to exist without him. And you're going to find out that underneath then are the everlasting arms. It's just the opposite of self-help. It's just the opposite of doing it on your own. It's coming to the place where you realize that the gracious Savior in heaven is knocking at our door. He's saying the existence, your existence depends upon your intimate table fellowship with Jesus. Where are you? Are you a hot, healing believer today? a refreshing, life-giving, cold drink of water to people? 
or has your relationship with Jesus become lukewarm? The good news is Jesus is knocking and says, hey, I want to make you healing again through my grace. I want to make you refreshing again by my grace.